Part Ten of The Wheels of Chance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wheels of Chance by H. G. Wells. Chapter Twenty Eight: The Departure from Chichester. He caused his sister to be called repeatedly and when she came down, explained with a humorous smile his legal relationship to the bicycle in the yard. Might be disagreeable, you know. His anxiety was obvious enough. Very well, she said, quite frequently. Hurry breakfast, and we'll ride out. I want to talk things over with you. The girl seemed more beautiful than ever after the night's sleep, her hair in comely dark waves from her forehead, her ungauntleted fingertips pink and cool, and how decided she was. Breakfast was a nervous ceremony, conversation fraternal but thin. The waiter overawed him, and he was cawed by a multiplicity of forks. But she called him Chris. They discussed their route over his sixpenny county map for the sake of talking, but avoided a decision in the presence of the attendant. The five-pound note was changed for the bill, and through Hoopdriver's determination to be quite the gentleman, the waiter and the chambermaid got half a crown each, the ostler a florin. Holidays, said the ostler to himself without gratitude. The public mounting of the bicycles in the street was a moment of trepidation. A policeman actually stopped and watched them from the opposite curb. Suppose him to come across and ask, Is that your bicycle, sir? Fight or drop it and run? It was a time of bewildering apprehension, too, going through the streets of the town, so that a milk-cart barely escaped destruction under Mr. Hoopdriver's chancy wheel. That recalled him to a sense of erratic steering, and he pulled himself together. In the lanes he breathed freer, and a less formal conversation presently began. "'You've ridden out of Chichester in a great hurry,' said Jessie. "'Well, the fact is, I'm worried, just a little bit, about this machine.' "'Of course,' she said. "'I had forgotten that.' "'But where are we going?' "'Just a turning or two more, if you don't mind,' said Hoopdriver. "'Just a mile or so. "'I have to think of you, you know. "'I should feel more easy. "'If we was locked up, you know, "'not that I should mind on my own account.' "'They rode with a streaky grey sea "'coming and going on their left hand. "'Every mile they put between themselves and Chichester, "'Mr. Hoopdriver felt a little less conscience-stricken.' and a little more of the gallant desperado. Here he was riding on a splendid machine with a slap-up girl beside him. What would they think of it in the Emporium, if any of them were to see him? He imagined in detail the astonishment of Miss Isaacs and of Miss Howes. Why, it's Mr. Hoopdriver, Miss Isaacs would say. Never! emphatically from Miss Howe. Then he played with Briggs, and then he tried G.V. in a chaise. Vance introducing M to her, my sister, Prodom. He was her brother, Chris. Chris what? Confound it. Harrington. Harrington. Something like that. Have to keep off that topic till he could remember. Wish he'd told her the truth now, almost. He glanced at her. She was riding with her eyes straight ahead of her, thinking. A little perplexed, she seemed. He noticed how well she rode, and that she rode with her lips closed, a thing he could never manage. Mr. Hoopdriver's mind came round to the future. What was she going to do? What were they both going to do? His thoughts took a graver color. He had rescued her. 
This was fine, manly rescue work he was engaged upon. She ought to go home, in spite of that stepmother. He must insist gravely but firmly upon that. She was the spirited sort, of course, but still. Wonder if she had any money. Wonder what the second-class fare from Havant to London is. Of course, he would have to pay that. It was the regular thing, he being a gentleman. Then should he take her home? He began to rough in a moving sketch of the return. The stepmother, repentant of her indescribable cruelties, would be present. Even these rich people have their troubles, probably an uncle or two. That footman would announce, Mr. Bother, that name, and Miss Milton. Then two women weeping together, and a knightly figure in the background, dressed in a handsome Norfolk jacket still conspicuously new. He would conceal his feeling until the very end. Then, leaving, he would pause in the doorway in such an attitude as Mr. George Alexander might assume, and say, slowly and dwindlingly, Be kind to her, be kind to her, and so depart heartbroken to the meanest intelligence. But that was a matter for the future. He would have to begin discussing the return soon. There was no traffic along the road, and he came up beside her. He had fallen behind in his musing. She began to talk. Mr. Dennison, she began, and then doubtfully, that is your name. I'm very stupid. It is, said Mr. Hoopdriver. Dennison, was it? Dennison, Dennison, Dennison. What was she saying? I wonder how far you are willing to help me. Confoundedly hard to answer a question like that on the spur of the moment, without steering widely. You may rely, said Mr. Hoopdriver, recovering from a violent wobble. I can assure you, I want to help you very much. Don't consider me at all. Leastways consider me entirely at your service. Nuisance not to be able to say this kind of thing right. You see, I'm so awkwardly situated. If I can only help you, you will make me very happy. There was a pause. Round a bend in the road they came upon a grassy space between the hedge and road, set with yarrow and meadow-sweet, where a felled tree lay upon the green. There she dismounted, and propping her machine against a stone, sat down. "'Here we can talk,' she said. "'Yes,' said Mr. Hoopdriver, expectant. She answered after a little while, sitting elbow on knee, her chin in her hand, and looking straight in front of her. "'I don't know. I am resolved to live my own life.' "'Of course,' said Mr. Hoopdriver. "'Naturally.' "'I want to live, and I want to see what life means. I want to learn.' Everyone is hurrying me. Everything is hurrying me. I want time to think. Mr. Hoopdriver was puzzled, but admiring. It was wonderful how clear and ready her words were. But then, one might well speak well with a throat and lips like that. He knew he was inadequate, but he tried to meet the occasion. If you let them rush you into anything, you might repent, of course. You'd be very silly, he said. "'Don't you want to learn?' she asked. "'I was wondering only this morning,' he began, and stopped. She was too intent upon her own thoughts to notice this insufficiency. "'I find myself in life, and it terrifies me. I seem to be like a little speck, whirling on a wheel, suddenly caught up. "'What am I here for?' I ask. "'Simply to be here a time. I asked it a week ago, I asked it yesterday, and I ask it today.' and little things happen, and the days pass. My stepmother takes me shopping, people come to tea, there is a new play to pass the time, a concert, or a novel. The wheels of the world go on turning, turning. It's horrible. 
I want to do a miracle like Joshua and stop the world until I have fought it out. At home it's impossible. Mr. Hoopdriver stroked his moustache. It is so, he said in a meditative tone. Things will go on. The faint breath of summer stirred the trees, and a bunch of dandelion puff lifted among the meadow-sweet, and struck and broke into a dozen separate threads against his knee. They flew on apart, and sank, as for the breeze fell, among the grass, some to germinate, some to perish. His eye followed them until they had vanished. "'I can't go back to Surbiton,' said the young lady in grey. "'Eh?' said Mr. Hoopdriver, catching at his moustache. This was an expected development. "'I want to write, you see,' said the young lady in grey, "'to write books and alter things, to do good. I want to lead a free life and own myself. I can't go back. I want to obtain a position as a journalist. I have been told, but I know no one to help me at once, no one that I could go to. There is one person. She was a mistress at my school. If I could write to her, but then... How could I get her answer? Humph, said Mr. Hoopdriver, very grave. I can't trouble you much more. You have come. You have first things. That don't count, said Mr. Hoopdriver. It's double pay to let me do it, so to speak. It is good of you to say that. Serpentin is so conventional. I am resolved to be unconventional, at any cost. But we are so hampered. If I could only burgeon out of all that hinders me, I want to struggle, to take my place in the world. I want to be my own mistress, to shape my own career. But my stepmother objects so. She does as she likes herself, and is strict with me to ease her conscience. And if I go back now, go back owning myself beaten. She left the rest to his imagination. I see that, agreed Mr. Hoopdriver. He must help her. With his skull he was doing some intricate arithmetic with five pounds, six, and two pence. In some vague way he inferred from all this that Jessie was trying to escape from an undesirable marriage, but was saying these things out of modesty. His circle of ideas was so limited. You know, Mr. I've forgotten your name again. Mr. Hoopdriver seemed lost in abstraction. You can't go back, of course, quite like that, he said thoughtfully. His ears were suddenly red and his cheeks flushed. But what is your name? Name, said Mr. Hoopdriver. Why, Benson, of course. Mr. Benson, yes. It's really very stupid of me, but I can never remember names. I must make note on my cuff. She clicked a little silver pencil and wrote the name down. If I could write to my friend, I believe she would be able to help me to an independent life. I could write to her, or telegraph. Write, I think. I could scarcely explain in a telegram. I know she would help me. Clearly there was only one course open to a gentleman under the circumstances. In that case, said Mr. Hoopdriver, if you don't mind trusting yourself to a stranger, we might continue as we are, perhaps, for a day or so, until you heard. Suppose thirty shilling a day, that gives four days, say four thirty is hun, and twenty, six quid, well, three days, say, four ten. You are very good to me. His expression was eloquent. Very well, then, and thank you. It's wonderful. It's more than I deserve that you... She dropped the theme abruptly. What was our bill at Chichester? Eh? said Mr. Hoopdriver, fang a certain stupidity. There was a brief discussion. Secretly he was delighted at her insistence in paying. She carried her point. Their talk came round to their immediate plans for the day. 
they decided to ride easily through Havant, and stop, perhaps at Fareham or Southampton, for the previous day had tired them both. Holding the map extended on his knee, Mr. Hoopdriver's eye fell by chance on the bicycle at his feet. That bicycle, he remarked quite irreverently, wouldn't look the same machine if I got a big old double heirloom instead of that little bell. Why? Just a thought. A pause. Very well, then. Avant and lunch, said Jessie, rising. I wish somehow we could have managed it without stealing that machine, said Mr. Hoopdriver, because it is stealing it, you know, come to think of it. Nonsense! If Mr. Becknell troubles you, I will tell the whole world, if need be. I believe you would, said Mr. Hoopdriver, admiring her. You're plucky enough, goodness knows. Discovering suddenly that she was standing, he too rose and picked up her machine. She took it and wheeled it into the road. Then he took his own. He paused, regarding it. I say, said he, how'd this bike look now, if it was enameled grey? She looked over her shoulder at his grave face. Why try and hide it in that way? It was, it was just a passing thought, said Mr. Hoopdriver airily. As they were riding on to Havant, it occurred to Mr. Hoopdriver, in a transitory manner, that the interview had been quite other than his expectation. But that was the way with everything, in Mr. Hoopdriver's experience. And though his wisdom looked grave within, and caution was chinking coins, and an ancient prejudice in favour of property shook her head, something else was there too, shouting in his mind to drown all the saner considerations, the intoxicating thought of riding beside her all day, all to-morrow, perhaps for other days after that, of talking to her familiarly, being brother of all her slender strength and freshness, of having a golden reel, a wonderful time, beyond all his imaginings. His old familiar fancyings gave place to anticipations as impalpable and fluctuating and beautiful as the sunset of a summer day. At Havant, he took an opportunity to purchase at a small hairdresser's in the main street a toothbrush, a pair of nail-scissors, and a little bottle of stuff to darken the moustache, an article the shopman introduced to his attention, recommended highly, and sold in the excitement of the occasion. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. THE UNEXPECTED ANTIDOTE OF THE LION They rode on to Kojum, and lunched lightly but expensively there. Jessie went out and posted her letter to her schoolmistress. Then the green height of Portsdown Hill tempted them, and leaving their machines in the village, they clambered up the slope to the silent red-brick fort that crowned it. Thence they had a view of Portsmouth and its cluster of sister towns, the crowded narrows of the harbour, the Solent, and the Isle of Wight, like a blue cloud through the hot haze. Jessie, by some miracle, had become a skirted woman in the Kajum Inn. Mr. Hoopdriver lounged gracefully on the turf, smoked a red herring cigarette, and lazily regarded the fortified town that spread like a map away there, the inner line of defence, like toy fortifications, a mile off, perhaps, and beyond that, a few little fields, and then the beginnings of landport suburbs, and the smoky cluster of the multitudinous houses. To the right, at the head of the harbour shallows, the town of Porchester rose among the trees. Mr. Hoopdriver's anxiety receded to some remote corner of his brain, and that florid, half-voluntary imagining of his sharing the stage with the image of Jessie. He began to speculate on the impression he was creating. 
he took stock of his suit optimistically again, and reviewed with some complacence his actions for the last four days and twenty hours. Then he was dashed at the thought of her infinite perfections. She had been observing him quietly, rather more closely during the last hour or so. She did not look at him directly, because he seemed always looking at her. Her own troubles had quieted down a little, and her curiosity about the chivalrous, worshipping, but singular gentleman in brown was awakening. She had recalled, too, the curious incident of their first encounter. She found him hard to explain to herself. You must understand that her knowledge of the world was rather less than nothing, having been obtained entirely from books. You must not take a certain ignorance for foolishness. She had begun with a few experiments. He did not know French, except civil play, a phrase he seemed to regard as a very good light table joke in itself. His English was uncertain, but not such as books informed her distinguished the lower class. His manners seemed to her good on the whole, but a trifle over-respectful and out of fashion. He called her madam once. He seemed a person of means and leisure, but he knew nothing of recent concerts, theatres, or books. How did he spend his time? He was certainly chivalrous, and a trifle simple-minded. She fancied, so much is there in a change of costume, that she had never met such a man before. What could he be? Mr. Benson, she said, breaking a silence, devoted to landscape. He rolled over and regarded her, chin on knuckles. As your service. Do you paint? Are you an artist? Well, judicious pause. I should hardly call myself an artist, you know. I do paint a little, and sketch, you know, skitty kind of things. He plucked and began to nibble a blade of grass. It was really not so much lying as his quick imagination that prompted him to add. In papers, you know, and all that. I see, said Jessie, looking at him thoughtfully. Artists were a very heterogeneous class, certainly, and genius had a trick of being a little odd. He avoided her eye and bit his grass. I don't do much, you know. It's not your profession? Oh, no, said Hoopdriver, anxious now to hedge. I don't make a regular thing of it, you know. Just now and then something comes into my head, and down it goes. Oh, I'm not a regular artist. Then you don't practice any regular profession? Mr. Hoopdriver looked into her eyes and saw their quite unsuspicious regard. He had vague ideas of resuming the detective role. It's like this, he said, to gain time. I have a sort of profession, only there's a kind of reason, nothing much, you know. I beg your pardon for cross-examining you. No trouble, said Mr. Hoopdriver, only I can't very well. I'll leave it to you, you know. I don't want to make any mystery of it, so far as that goes. Should he plunge boldly and be a barrister? That, anyhow, was something pretty good, but she might know about the barristry. I think I could guess what you are. Well, guess, said Mr. Hoopdriver. You come from one of the colonies. Dear me, said Mr. Hoopdriver, veering round to the new wind. How did you find out that? The man was born in the London suburb, dear reader. I guessed, she said. He lifted his eyebrow as one astonished and clutched a new piece of grass. You were educated up-country. Good again, said Hoopdriver, rolling over again upon his elbow. You're a clairvoyant. He bit at the grass, smiling. Which colony was it? 
that I don't know. You must guess, said Hoopdriver. South Africa, she said. I strongly incline to South Africa. South Africa is quite a large place, he said. But South Africa is right? You're warm, said Hoopdriver. Anyhow, and the while his imagination was eagerly exploring this new province. South Africa is right, she insisted. He turned over again and nodded, smiling reassuringly into her eyes. What made me think of South Africa was that novel of Olive Schreiner, you know, the story of an African farm. Gregory Ross is so like you. I never read the story of an African farm, said Hoopdriver. I must. What's he like? You must read the book, but it's a wonderful place, with its mixture of races and its brand-new civilization jolsting the old savagery. Were you near Kama? He was a long way off from your place, said Mr. Hoopdriver. We had a little ostrich farm, you know, just a few hundred of them, out Johannesburg way. On the Karoo, was it called? That's the term. Some of it was freehold, though. Luckily, we got along very well in the old days, but there's no ostriches on that farm now. He had a diamond mine in his head, just at the moment, but he stopped and left a little to the girl's imagination, besides which it had occurred to him with a kind of shock that he was lying. What becomes of the ostriches? We sold them off when we parted with the farm. Do you mind if I have another cigarette? That was when I was a little chap, you know, that we had this ostrich farm. Did you have blacks and boars about you? Lots, said Mr. Hoopdriver, striking a match on his instep and beginning to feel hot at the new responsibility he had brought upon himself. How interesting! Do you know I've never been out of England except to Paris and Mentone and Switzerland? One gets tired of travelling. Puff. After a bit, of course. You must tell me about your farm in southern Africa. It always stimulates my imagination to think of all the places I can fancy, all the tall ostriches being driven out by a black herd to graze, I suppose. How do ostriches feed? Well, said Hoopdriver, that's rather various. They have their fancies, you know. There's fruit, of course, and that kind of thing, and chicken food, and so forth. You have to use judgment. Did you ever see a lion? They weren't very common in our district, said Hoopdriver quite modestly. But once I've seen them, of course. Once or twice. Fancy seeing a lion. Weren't you frightened? Mr. Hoopdriver, now, was thoroughly sorry he had accepted that offer of South Africa. He puffed his cigarette and regarded the Solent languidly, and he settled that fate of that lion in his mind. I scarcely had time, he said. It all happened in a minute. Go on, she said. I was going across the inner paddock where the fatted ostriches were. Did you eat ostriches, then? I did not know. Eat them, often. Very nice they are, too. Properly stuffed. Well, we, I, rather, was going across the paddock, and I saw something standing up in the moonlight and looking at me. Mr. Hoopdriver was in hot perspiration now. His invention seemed to have gone limp. Luckily I had my father's gun with me. I was scared, though. I can tell you. Puff. I just aimed at the end that I thought was the head, and let fly. Puff. And over it went, you know. Dead? As dead. It was one of the luckiest shots I ever fired, and I wasn't much over nine at the time, either. I should have screamed and run away. There's some things you can't run away from, said Mr. Hoopdriver. To run would have been death. 
"'I don't think I ever met a lion-killer before,' she remarked evidently with a heightened opinion of him. There was a pause. She seemed meditating further questions. Mr. Hoopdriver drew his watch hastily. "'I say,' said Mr. Hoopdriver, showing it to her, "'don't you think we ought to be getting on?' His face was flushed, his ears bright red. She ascribed his confusion to modesty. He rose with the lion, added to the burthens of his conscience, and held out his hand to assist her. They walked down into Cosham again, resumed their machines, and went on at a leisurely pace along the northern shore of the big harbour. But Mr. Hoopdriver was no longer happy. This horrible, this fulsome lie stuck in his memory. Why had he done it? She did not ask for any more South African stories, happily, at least until Porchester was reached, but talk instead of living one's own life and how custom hung on people like chains. She talked wonderfully and set Hoopdriver's mind fermenting. By the castle, Mr. Hoopdriver caught several crabs in the little shore pool. At Fareham, they stopped for a second tea and left the place towards the hour of sunset under such invigorating circumstances as you shall in due course hear. End of Part 10